Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Over the last few days, we've had the Exchequer returns for April uh, we've had Irish unemployment data for April. I just want to take you through the headlines there. It was a big week for interest rates. We had the European Central Bank and the Federal Reserve, as expected, continuing to tighten interest rate policy. Um, I think commodity markets do warrant another discussion because we're continuing to see absolutely dramatic moves in commodity prices um, across a broad range. It's energy, it's food, it's lumber, it's absolutely everything. So it's, it's pretty dramatic. Something amazing going on there. And I think tells us something really significant about what the markets are expecting economies to do over the next 12 months. And the banking story continues to evolve with a couple of other banks in significant difficulty at the moment. And of course, that's all related to the interest rate situation and background. And Jay Powell made some comments about it last night at the after the FOMC meeting. So uh, a lot of stuff going on. I'll start, if I may, by just a quick synopsis of what the Irish Exchequer returns. And the bottom line is Ireland continues to be a mean, lean, green tax generating machine. First four months of the year, 24.1 billion collected, up 14.2% are almost 3 billion, which is strong stuff. Income tax is particularly strong, up 10.4 billion collected, up 9.4% or 894 million. And of course, that more than anything else reflects the ongoing buoyancy of the labour market. VAT up 16% or 968 million, also very strong. And corporation tax is up 55% in April, 
there was a year-on-year decline. I wouldn't attach any significance to that because from month to month, you do tend to get significant volatility in various tax headings. And of course, the early months of the year, very little corporation tax is paid in any event. Well, when I say very little, I should put that in context. 3.5 billion is very little in context of what we were collecting last year and what we're going to collect in total this year, you know, around 24 billion expected. But 10 years ago, 3.5 billion would have been close to what we would have expected to take in in the first for the year. It's an, as I say, it's an ongoing story of tax revenue buoyancy. Uh, we ran a deficit of 3.7 billion. Uh, that compares to a deficit of 1.1 billion in the same period last year. Uh, but the key difference is that this year we've put 4 billion into the National Reserve Fund. So all in all, the tax receipts continue to point towards economic buoyancy. And I mentioned, uh, of course, the buoyancy of income tax and saying it reflected what was going on in the labour market. And indeed, we've just got the most recent unemployment data for April. And for the second time in our history, the unemployment rate has fallen below 4% of the labour force, 3.9%, 108,200 people unemployed. That's a decline of 15,200 on the same month last year. So the labour market continues to be really strong. And listen, I'm not remotely surprised because everybody I talk to in all sorts of businesses, the key issue they're complaining about is the shortage of labour, the difficulty in recruiting, retaining, and as a consequence of that, the upward pressure on wages. And we're seeing restaurants in particular deciding not to open a few days a week now all over the country. So no surprises there, but I still think it is a really significant milestone when you get the unemployment rate below 4%. So I would say without fear of contradiction at this point that our economy is as close to full employment as we've ever been. Wow, uh, that's quite something. That's a, a dystopian hellhole, Jim, as some others might describe Threat it. The country. What can you do? It's that bloody economic growth. You know, I know. Threat. Economic growth is... It's just it's just awful. As a kind of a postscript to what we were talking about the other day, one of the talking points that I missed following my slightly going off on one about Michael D. Higgins' diatribe against economists in general and economic growth in particular, is that if you had studied economics for any length of time, you would know of both ancient and modern writings about growth in a surprising context. The father of modern economics, a guy called Adam Smith, going all the way back to the 1700s, wrote books and uh, tracts about the moral aspects of economic growth. And he and other classical economists wrote about how economies' character and moral and other non-economic developments are aided and abetted, and indeed require economic growth to happen. And that that kind of thinking, almost philosophical thinking, fell out of fashion amongst economists for a while until somebody wrote a book called The Moral Consequences of Economic Growth a few years ago. Was that, that, was ben, that? Ben, ben Friedman? Friedman ben that's Friedman, right. Yeah. In which he rehearsed those arguments, put it in that moral context, which I th- would have thought would have been very appealing to Michael D. Higgins. And I think putting it in an Irish context, which I did actually back in January of this year in a Substack article that I wrote for our website, And I said that if you follow this line of thinking to its logical conclusion, 
you would start saying things like Ireland's progressivity in terms of its social policy, gay marriage, divorce, it's uh, all sorts of different aspects of non-economic progress wouldn't have happened without economic growth. Indeed, a very left-wing president like Michael D. Higgins might not have happened without economic growth. There's a thought. But I, I think we've said enough about Michael D. I don't know whether you want to add anything there and, and move on. or No, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about it and there's been a lot of social media coverage and uh, somebody sent me a chart on social media of the global emissions lines going in an upper direction and GDP growth going in an upper direction. Just let it hanging there. And, you know, obviously, the more economic activity you have, uh, the more carbon you are going to create. And that's why uh, changing the nature of economic growth and trying to make it as carbon neutral as possible is obviously really, really important. But one of the underlying causes of all of this really is global population growth. You know, the global population is, is growing dramatically and is expected to keep growing for a while longer. So inevitably, if you have a growing global population, you are going to need stronger growth to actually address that. So, you know, one way of solving carbon emissions and so on and damage to the environment would be to take 3 billion people off the face of the earth. Well, there are various ways you might do that. But it must be said also that the carbon intensity of developed economies growth has been falling dramatically as service sector grows then so carbon emissions don't you can look at the charts for individual economies like the uk for instance and we aren't particularly carbon intensive nearly as much as we were people say that we we outsource that to china and there is an element of truth in that um, but only an element of truth but anyway i do think that if you do a proper balance sheet of all the pluses and minuses from economic growth i think that emphatically the plus side would dominate the minus side. Chris, we had a big week on the interest rate front. Uh, the European Central Bank and the Federal Reserve both increasing their key rates by a quarter of 1% or 25 basis points. It, it's funny the way the markets try and interpret the statements that follow those sorts of interest rate changes. Basically, the European Central Bank, you know, headline inflation declining, but underlying price pressures remain strong. Um, there is still uncertainty about how the interest rate increases we've seen over the last number of months will actually transmit into the real economy. And the European Central Bank basically said that borrowing costs are now in restrictive territory. However, the ECB will continue to follow the data. And uh, Christine Lagarde believes that there is more ground to be covered because the fight against inflation is not yet won. The reason why I read out those comments is because I saw a lot of market reaction in the immediate aftermath, just after one o'clock when the rate increase was announced, um, suggesting that because they'd moved from a half back to a quarter, that signified that the rate cycle had peaked. Couldn't understand that interpretation. And I can understand it a lot less now that I see the comments made by Christine Lagarde. So I, th I think it's clear that as far as Christine Lagarde is concerned at this stage, she will increase interest rates further. The only thing that would change that is if over the next month or so, we were to see a significant deterioration in the economic backdrop. And if inflation started, underlying inflation starts to come down and underlying inflation 
is headline inflation. It's inflation when you strip out from the headline energy, particularly, but also food. In the case of the United States, um, a a pretty similar story. They've taken rates up to five and a quarter percent from zero in March of 22, March of last year. Basically, I think the Fed was also saying that, listen, we're going to sit back now and see how the data transpires over the coming weeks and see how inflation behaves. Uh, But certainly, in my view, there was no indication from the Fed that this is it. It was called a hawkish pause, I think, by some people, which I think is a fair interpretation. Indeed. They're fed up trying to forecast inflation because they keep getting it wrong. What they're saying is that we're just going to look and see what happens. And if the numbers come in bad, we'll put up rates again. And if they don't, we won't. And it's a fairly simple interest rate model, policy model. But I think it's more realistic than the one that they've been operating with. They they have got it badly wrong. They're just going to wait and see. And therefore, so will we. As, as equally interesting for me about what will happen to interest rates going forward from their statements was what the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jay Powell, said about the banking crisis or the mini banking crisis that they're going through in the United States. One or two more banks, as you said in your intro, are in trouble. At least their share prices are, um, indicating some un- maybe some underlying trouble at those banks. Um, who knows? But the dramatic moves in share prices of some- one or two more regional banks does suggest a lot of trouble. The question inevitably arises, Jim, is this another one or two one-offs, self-contained banks getting into trouble, or is it something else? The more you look into, you know, what's happening there, you know, one of the key factors has been the damage that rising interest rates has done to the asset side of bank balance sheets, uh, particularly the holdings of treasuries that Silicon Valley Bank particularly. So there was a sharp um, mark-to-market fall in the value of those assets. And of course, on the deposit side of the balance sheet or the liability side, the fact that there was a very high percentage of deposits not covered by the Federal Deposit Insurance uh, Corporation scheme, uh, that caused a lot of big depositors to take their money out of those banks. And the same thing is happening now, although it's to a much lesser degree in the two banks that are in trouble at the moment. Um, and it's, it's highly likely both of those banks will go out of business uh, somehow. The question we've tried to address many times is how many more banks out there are, are, are like that? And uh, with interest rates continuing to rise, you'd have to fear that we are going to feel more pain. One of the more interesting podcasts that I think, dare I say, you and I have done in recent times was the last one before this, which was with Noah Smith. And he had a fascinating perspective on this in that he agreed with us, which is that the problem these banks are facing is that they had the wrong business model. They based their their business on low interest rates continuing forever. That was dopey. So was the regulation of those banks. The banks took too much risk and the regulators let them take too much risk. A a relatively simple story. Uh, There are some complexities underneath that, but that at the headline level is what's going on. Noah's perspective was that the authorities have done enough to stem the problems and that what looks like a series of banks, one after the other, getting themselves into trouble is actually the wrong way to look at it. What he says is that all of what happened, the problems in these banks occurred in the first quarter. And the fact that they're reporting their first quarter results, their first quarter deposit outflows at different times makes it look sequential 
but in fact it was contemporaneous. They all lost their deposits during the first quarter at the same time. And then, then the authorities moved to stem the outflows, in particular with extended deposit insurance. And that now that the authorities have taken measures to really deal with the reasons why the deposits flowed out, logically, the deposit flows should stop. And I can see why he would argue that. There's a lot of sense. Uh, there's abundant sense in what he's saying. But what I think it misses is the psychology of bank runs. And that's twofold. Rationally, if you were faced with opening a new account, even though your deposit was guaranteed by one of these banks that the market now thinks is dodgy, would you put your money with them or with JP Morgan? That's the first question. The second question is, if you had money in these banks, even though you've been guaranteed by the government, would you feel like leaving it there? I don't know. Sometimes these things can be very psychological and not terribly rational. And that once money starts to leave banks, you know what it's like. If there's a queue, people want to join it. So I worry that we are in a slow motion bank run in the United States on these things. and that There is more to come. I've always been more worried than, for example, Noah is at the moment. Another aspect of the banking crisis that worries me as much, if not more than the psychology of a bank run, is what actually happens next to the economy and how that's going to interact with weak banks. Because as you rightly said when describing the problems that these banks have got themselves into, it's about deposits flowing out. It's not about loans going bad. That was what caused the great financial crisis, loans going bad, in particular mortgages going bad. People were unable to repay their huge mortgages that they'd taken out. And that was the essential cause of the great financial crisis. We haven't had anything like that yet. Hopefully we won't. But if we now go into recession or just an economic slowdown, that side of a bank's balance sheet could start to be impacted negatively so that some of their loans that they have made on the back of the strong economy start to go bad on the back of a weak economy. People can't repay their car loans, their credit cards or whatever reason they've taken out a loan. So I think that there could well be further trouble for the banks, but from a different, more traditional source. Um, bank problems that we're more used to, at least from 15 years ago. So I think putting those few things together, I am still quite worried about the US banking system. It also means I'm quite worried about the economy, because if you think about, again, Noah Smith made this point very forcefully, is that whatever you think about whether or not this banking crisis will continue, what's happened so far will cause something of a credit crunch. Whether it's a major one or a minor one remains to be seen, but it does mean that both the price and in particular the quantity of credit is going to be restricted. Banks are going to pull back, and you and I have talked about that a lot, and that will cause an economic slowdown. As Noah said in that brilliant podcast that we did with him, that's what the Fed wants. It wants the economy to slow, and this is the credit channel through which slowdowns happen. And you can see people starting to get even more worried than they have been about the economy in the behavior of commodity prices. The oil price just today, for example, has been extraordinary. You might remember, Jim, we talked about it a few weeks ago when OPEC cut its output targets and everybody started saying, oh, my God, the, the oil market is going to be incredibly tight. We're going back up to $100. It's awful. It's awful. Uh, the key U.S. benchmark oil price is now below $70. And Brent, the one that's used in Europe, is at about 72 That's well below 
where OPEC wants it. That's well below it went to when those OPEC output cuts were introduced. And these oil price falls have been joined by the fall in European natural gas. Jim, the natural gas price, spot natural gas price in Europe is now one-tenth of where it was last summer. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Just €35.70. My gas bill is not a tenth of what it was last summer, I can assure you. So what's going on? In the last few days, Chris, we've seen bumper results from Shell and BP. Here in Ireland, we've seen strong um, earning statement from AIB. The interest rate margin has increased significantly. and Bank is very optimistic about the future. So you get the impression from all of this that certainly consumers, there is a transfer of wealth from consumers to the corporate world. There's no doubt about that. We've we've had this bullshit argument from the energy companies and so on, suggesting that you know they they buy forward, so they're they're contracted to a price. Uh, but there's when, an element of truth in that, isn't there? there is, sorry, there is an element. But to tell me when prices started to rise, surely they would have bought forward at that stage. So there should have been a time lag before. The market movement in commodity prices was reflected in um, the price the utilities were charging us. But no, I mean, petrol went up at the pumps um, almost on a daily basis. So maybe I'm missing something here. No, I don't think you are, Jim. I think we're being taken for a ride. I think us as consumers, we're being taken for a ride by by these companies. It's what these companies do. It's what they're there for, to make money. They're not there to help us. Shareholder value. Um, That's what it's all about. Winner takes all. And so... Yeah, there's an element of truth that there are leads and lags in the system, that they did buy a lot of oil and gas at high prices and all of that needs to work its way through the system. But that suspicion that you have, that they're much quicker to put up prices than fall, that's been around for a long, long time. We see it on the petrol forecourt a lot. So it's a bit like bank. One of the reasons why the banks got into trouble in the States is that they they hide increases in profit margin behind other things that are going on. And all companies do it. The extent to which they're able to do it depends very much on how much competition there is in their industry. And it's yet another example of this thing that I've been banging on about. There just isn't very much competition in too many key sectors of our economies anymore. And I think the energy sector is is, is one of those sectors that, frankly, is not fit for purpose. The idea that the gas price is now a tenth of what it was, and if you should see my gas and electricity bills in the UK, and this will be similar in Ireland, 
Um, Jim, the, the wholesale price of electricity, the spot price, there, there are various different ways of describing this. The wholesale price of electricity back last year was got close to £600 per megawatt hour, right? Do you know what it is today? 89 quid. Have my electricity prices fallen at all? No, they have not. Have they fallen from the equivalent of 600 to 89? No. And I know that there are subsidies and that yada yada, et cetera, et cetera. But no, this is not, um, this is not consistent with uh, a functioning uh, market that is, that is fit for purpose for both consumers and producers. And the, the producers' profits tell you all that you need to know, really, doesn't, don't they? Yeah, they do indeed. But uh, l- looking at this commodity picture, you know, Brent crude down 34% in the last year, heating oil 42%, European gas 67%. It goes on and on. Um, wheat prices down by 43%. These are dramatic year-on-year declines, albeit this time last year they were had a serious spike because of the Ukraine situation, which was just starting to evolve at that stage. Uh, But I think the markets are certainly telling us something about future demand expectations at the moment. And I think these sorts of commodity price declines um, are definitely saying to us the markets believe recession is happening globally in the next 12 months. Uh, The markets may be wrong, uh, but I think that's what the markets are telling us at the moment. And um, I know central bankers are largely responsible for this because it is the monetary tightening. But I, I think monetary authorities need to become a little bit more conscious of the other side of the equation, you know, the damage they are actually doing to um, lives, to economies, to labor markets and so on. Um, but I, I suppose central banks are not in the moral realm anyway. But we got an interesting um interaction from one of our listeners on social media he was asking about the two percent inflation target of the european central bank and chris if you remember your one of your first classes in economics in my case it was in fifth year in school in waterford and you're taught about inflation demand pull cost push and you're taught about what are the dangers of inflation you know why is inflation a bad thing it's the erosion of purchasing power and so on and and nothing much has changed in terms of that sort of analysis but so and i and i think most people would accept that high inflation is a bad thing but what is the definition of high inflation i mean why doesn't ecb go for a four percent target rather than a two percent target the two percent target was deemed to be consistent with price stability Mm. And price stability is actually 0%. Yeah. The reason why they went for 2% was because they stuck their fingers in the air uh, for two reasons. One, um, if you target 0% and then you get deflation, you've got a problem because deflations are as nasty, if not nastier than inflation. So they wanted to give themselves some wiggle room. And relatedly, they thought that inflation, generally speaking, there were a lot of studies back in the day that said we mismeasure inflation. And that when inflation is about 2%, it really is about 0%. I don't know whether those studies still hold. But it used to be the case that people used to say price stability, which is the mandate given to central banks, is about is really about 2% to give them some policy room for manoeuvre and to account for the fact that inflation is mismeasured. But, you know, they could have chosen three. And 
the fact is, de facto, they've accepted all sorts of different inflation levels, haven't they? Because the Europeans have never hit their 2%. When they have done, they, it's been very, very brief. I, I think central banking is mu as much art as science. It's probably completely art rather than science. And there's a lot of mumbo jumbo. And as I go back to my remarks earlier on, which is that they tried to be scientific, base it on inflation forecast, big mistake. Um, basing anything on forecasts is a big mistake. Everybody knows that I say that all the time. And so it has proven the uh, ECB is now publicly saying um, via channels that they're not going to rely on economic forecasts, particularly inflation forecasts anymore. And they're just going to see what happens. And they're going to get paid a lot of money for doing this. I think you and I could do that job far cheaper. Indeed, we could. Uh, Chris, uh, I must say, I really enjoyed our last podcast with Noah Smith. Um, found him absolutely fascinating. Um, to be frank, I'd love to have done about three hours with him, but you know, I don't think our listeners would listen to a three-hour podcast, but uh, I thought it was really, really brilliant. And I hope our listeners enjoyed it. I, I'd love to do it again with him, I have to say, because uh, I just sat back in awe, listening, learning. It was great. Great to talk to a professional expert. It was absolutely fantastic. Probably one of our best podcasts, certainly from my perspective. I learned a lot. And as you say, it was so enjoyable talking to a thorough professional, somebody with deep domain knowledge of a whole range of subjects and so many takeaways, which I'm still thinking about, actually. But one of them was the difference now in terms of economic policy uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. And people over here are not paying enough attention to a couple of things. One is what Biden is doing with his two key acts, the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, and the CHIPS Act. And the interaction with their policy objectives of containing China and dealing with inequality. The size and scope and nature of these policies is extraordinary. And it, it's a big change. One of the changes is, as Noah emphasized, they no longer believe in free trade. All of that stuff's out of the window. And so that, that has all sorts of resonance for me in the UK about buccaneering global free trade in Britain. And the Americans have just decided to junk all that which is really interesting, but it has huge implications for us here, not least because I don't think policymakers in Europe generally fully appreciate just what the Americans are up to. It's huge. It's enormous. And the second aspect, which I hadn't really appreciated, with obvious exceptions, this is bipartisan. This is something that both sides of the House, Democrats and Republicans, are agreeing on. And those are forms of words that we haven't used about the United States for a long time. So, yeah, a lot of stuff in there that was really food for thought. OK, Chris, good to talk. Thanks, Jim. Speak Bye. next time. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. 
Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.